Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. And I'm Tegan Taylor. Today, why women are different when it comes to heart disease and how these differences may affect treatment. You'll hear from Dr Tony Fauci, who's overseeing the US response to COVID-19, including vaccination. A better way to communicate and calculate cancer prognosis and survival for patients as well as doctors. And urinary tract infections, UTIs, including the dreaded cystitis, peeing, razor blades. Many women and some men know the symptoms, that needing to go to the toilet constantly with that painful burning. But for something that's so common, there's often confusion on how best to treat them. Do antibiotics help and to what extent? What about over-the-counter remedies? Well, new research has brought together the most reliable evidence on treating UTIs to see when it's appropriate to take a wait-and-see approach. And one of its authors joins us now, Tammy Hoffman. Welcome to The Health Report. Hi, Tegan. Hi, Norman. So most women would know this as cystitis. Is that what we're talking about today? Yes, so uncomplicated urinary tract infection. And what did your study find was the best way to treat them? So we actually looked at what happens if you don't treat a UTI, um, usually because the conventional kind of practice has always been to um, offer antibiotics. We were actually interested in what happens if you don't treat with antibiotics and you just wait and see, does it fall into the category of sort of one of these self-remitting diseases that gets better spontaneously? So we um, did a systematic review of any randomised trial that had a placebo group in which the placebo didn't didn't um, treat. And so there was only three trials that have looked at this that had a placebo group. Most of them had compared different types of antibiotics. And we found that about a third of women seemed to get better within the first week without um, any antibiotic treatment. Why is this sort of research important? Because uh, an antibiotic use is overuse is a, a big problem. So one of the antibiotics that's commonly used to treat UTI is trimethoprim, and it's got quite high resistance rates. Um, and so as well as the problem of resistance, if you take an antibiotic that you may not need, there's also the problem of the side effects that a lot of women, a lot of people experience with antibiotics, so rash and diarrhea and vomiting. So if there's a condition for which a treatment is not needed, in this case, um, antibiotics, then the option of not treating um, should be explicitly explained to the patient as being a, a legitimate option. I mean, having a UTI sucks, I speak from personal experience. Are women yeah. willing to wait or do they just want yeah. medication straight away? So some of the research that's looked at this, so the option that we were saying is should be explicitly explained is something called a wait and see um, with a, a sort of a backup prescription. So they're given the prescription and said, just give it a few days, see if it improves without it. But a list of kind of red flags, things to be aware of, to watch or if it does get worse. So the women have got the prescription if they decide to use it. And so that that option of sort of just waiting and seeing but with a backup prescription. Some of the studies that have looked at the acceptability of that have found that up to about half of patients find that an acceptable option. So this paper is part of a series that's aiming to help doctors help their patients make informed decisions using a framework called shared decision making and part of the goal is to reduce uh, antibiotic use. What kind of barriers are there for patients and doctors when it comes to reaching a shared decision? Uh, so I think knowing that what all the options are, so in this series of papers or projects that we've been doing where one option is explicitly not treat and just kind of a wait and watch or wait and see, I think there's 
there's little, little awareness among clinicians and the public that actually just waiting and seeing is often a legitimate option. Um, also, the then there needs to be some talk about what the benefits and the harms are of all the options, so the do nothing or the immediately treat and having the evidence to hand kind of the numbers and, and the benefits and harms ready in a consultation for a clinician to use as a patient, that's one of the barriers. It was interesting you said before that there wasn't actually very much that looked at things that weren't antibiotics, but there's a lot of sort of popular wisdom that there are over-the-counter remedies that can work for cystitis. Did you look at that in your study as well? We synthesised the evidence that's there, um, also looked at the existing um, systematic reviews that have been done and there's there's no evidence that any of these sort of over-the-counter remedies have, have any effect. So we often hear that doctors are over-prescribed or are prescribing the wrong antibiotics for cystitis. Is shared decision-making a way to help tease that out as well? So the shared decision-making usually wouldn't go into which particular antibiotic. If the patient decides after hearing what the options are and the benefits and harms of the option and if they decided that they'd like immediate antibiotics, it wouldn't usually go into um, particular antibiotic preferences, but it could based on you know clinical history. Um, but it's generally just making sure that that decision whether to proceed immediately with antibiotics or just wait and see if the infection gets better on its own is something that's discussed and um, considered by, by both the patient and the doctor. So the papers that you've written are very much primarily for a medical audience, but what do you hope that uh, the general woman and the occasional man takes away from the work that you're doing? Uh, that they feel free to ask their doctor and indeed are encouraged to say, so what are my options? Um, what happens if I do nothing? And that then the doctors will have um, the answers to help have a, a shared, shared a, a collaborative discussion about what the next um, best steps are for that patient in that circumstance. What about the doctors themselves? Uh, is there resistance to shared decision-making? Do they perhaps worry that uh, their patient satisfaction is, that their patients aren't going to be satisfied if this is the approach that they take? Actually, usually shared decision-making results in higher levels of patient satisfaction. Um, so patients often feel uh, more more collaboratively involved in the decision and they feel um, that some of the things that may not have previously been discussed are discussed in a more sort of structured way. So it actually leads to usually increased satisfaction with consultation and communication. Tammy Hoffman, thank you so much for joining us on The Health Report. Thank you, Tegan. Tammy Hoffman is Professor of Clinical Epidemiology at the Institute for Evidence-Based Healthcare at Bond University. This is Iron's Health Report, and I'm Norman Swan. Heart disease kills about five times more women than breast cancer, but women experience it several years later than men, it being heart disease, and often with different symptoms. Most heart research has been into men, and the assumption has been that despite the differences, it's the same disease with the same treatments. But an international study looking at large numbers of genes working together has found that women have their own patterns, and this has major implications for prevention and treatment. One of the researchers was Professor Jason Kovacic, who heads the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute in Sydney. Thanks, Norman. It's great to be back. Let's just start with the clinical differences because there are lots of differences between men and women when it comes to coronary heart disease and heart attacks. We know from the outset that women and men have different risk factors for coronary heart disease. So, for example, high blood pressure or hypertension tends to be more common in women, whereas men tend to smoke more. Men tend to have more trouble with obesity. So there are these differences in risk factors. That leads, on average, a difference in the age of onset of coronary heart disease, of it being about five years earlier in men 
And that age difference may be partly driven by other factors that are different between men and women. For example, testosterone in men, which is probably causative, and oestrogen in women, which is perhaps partially protective. And then as women go through menopause, they're then predisposed to coronary heart disease. Another key difference is the presentation. So we know that men and women often present differently with heart attack. Men tend to get typical crushing chest pain. Women can get that, but they can also present with more atypical and vague symptoms like back pain or nausea, indigestion, and so on. And with stroke, I mean, I know we're talking about heart attacks at the moment, but stroke is part of the spectrum of coronary heart disease and atherosclerosis. People have said that maybe even atherosclerosis, the process of gumming up the arteries with cholesterol is different in women, a different disease in women. That's very correct. And even in men, it's different. You get a 40-year-old overweight, obese male that smokes two packets a day, they have a different type of atherosclerosis than, you know, a 70-year-old male that's lived otherwise well that then develops it. And even more pronounced in men versus women, and also gender and also even race and ethnicity. So we know that, for example, Indigenous people and African-Americans often present with peripheral vascular disease like blockages of the legs, whereas white Caucasians tend to present with heart attack and stroke. So it is a diverse disease that manifests differently in men versus women, different ethnicities and so on. Now, you looked at this in terms of atherosclerosis and what are called gene regulatory networks, which is going to make the eyes of the listener water. What are these gene regulatory networks and how do they relate to atherosclerosis? The gene regulatory network is just the biologic reality that we have thousands of genes that all interact with each other to cause a series of changes. A bit like when you throw a rock into a pond and there's a sort of ripple effect and things cascade outwards. It's exactly the same in biology. So it's a complex so, interaction between thousands of hundreds genes working, of thousands. working together. Yeah, exactly. So we've studied atherosclerosis and many other diseases in terms of these complex interactions and gene networks. And that's exactly what we did in this study. And what did you find? We studied the vessel wall, which is where these blockages occur and atherosclerosis happens. And for the first time, we're actually able to segregate out men versus women and construct these networks and understand these networks in men versus women. Here we sampled from patients that were actually undergoing bypass graft surgery. We took pieces of the whole vessel wall, of the diseased vessel wall, and studied that. So in this approach, we got the whole of the plaque, the whole of the vessel wall. So you found a pattern that was specific to women and their atherosclerosis. So like a lot of things in medicine, a lot of the studies have been skewed towards men. And we immediately saw that the networks in women versus men were quite different. Some networks are relating to interactions of the immune system, some relating to cholesterol, some relating to smooth muscle cells and other cell types. So about 100 networks and a large number of them were fundamentally different. The key networks that we found that were really different, though, were related to cell function in women, and that's particularly cells that reside in the vessel wall, versus in men, the networks that were fundamentally different were related to the immune system. So is this good or bad, or in terms of the difference between men and women, does it tell you anything about potential therapies, or what does it tell you apart from fascinating biological information? I think it's really important on a number of levels. It first confirms that the processes are fundamentally different in men versus women. 
And that knowledge then opens the door to the possibility of sex-specific therapies to treat the disease. So as you know, until now, we've had just general therapies that we use for everybody. So for coronary heart disease, it's aspirin, it's statins, it's blood pressure lowering with beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, these kind of therapies. But that's a one-size-fits-all approach. And we are definitely moving in medicine towards precision medicine where we use specific therapies to treat the right patient at the right time with what they really need. And this will enable us to now drill down on what's specific to men versus women and to develop those kind of sex-specific therapies that we might give a specific drug to women for, with coronary heart disease and a different drug to men. How generalizable was this to all women? And did you get some women who look more like men and some men who look more like women? We had 160 women in this study and they were matched to 160 men. So we didn't have enough subjects to really drill down on different clusters of women and, and groupings of women that might have different disease processes. And if indeed there are some women that look like men in their genetic architecture. What I can say, however, is that, as you said, there are hundreds or thousands of genes that have been proven to be associated with this atherosclerotic process through studies, discovery studies that are called genome-wide association studies. And that has led us to understand the heritability of about 30% of the causality of atherosclerosis. So a large proportion of the genetic basis of why people get these diseases was totally not understood. We now understand through other studies we've conducted with our group that there's a large proportion of heritability of these diseases carried in these networks. So network genes do determine heritability. And that indeed probably speaks to why we're seeing differences between men and women. So watch this space. It's really exciting. And this whole network biology is really enabling us to take an understanding of not only atherosclerosis and coronary heart disease, but a whole raft of other diseases like Alzheimer's disease, obesity, hypertension, and for the first time, understand them at their true level of complexity. It's really exciting stuff. Jason, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Professor Jason Kovacic is the Executive Director of the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute in Sydney. Doctors are generally not very good at giving patients an accurate or realistic prognosis. They don't want people to lose hope and sometimes don't think there's the evidence to be sure. Yet when someone's given a cancer diagnosis, one of the questions they have, even if they don't ask it, is how long have they got? There's a US site called cancersurvivalrates.com, which aims to give patients and healthcare professionals accurate information on prognosis by tumor type. And recently, a group of Australian cancer specialists have helped the Americans improve the way it's communicated. Dr. Belinda Kiley is an oncologist who works at the National Health and Medical Research Council's Clinical Trial Center and has researched communicating prognosis. Welcome to the Health Report. Hi, Norman. Thanks for having me on. Now, how often do people actually ask, how long have I got? Um, Even though they're thinking of it. Yeah, look, it varies. So I think I think probably most people, when they first get diagnosed with cancer, that's often one of the first thoughts that they have. But I think a lot of them are too afraid to say it and ask that question. Um, and so I think probably some people will say straight away, how long have I got? But a lot of people go home and then they go home or their family members or friends go home and start searching Google or the internet and typing in how long will I live for with cancer X. And um, I think that happens quite a bit. And I think it's difficult for people to get 
reliable or accurate information when they're just searching randomly on the internet. And it can scare the heck out of you. Absolutely, yeah, and I think you can get information that's very wrong. Um, a lot of cancers these days have got really great survival times um, and sometimes when you're Googling you might get something that's completely wrong for your situation. And doctors don't have much of a clue about it either really, do they? Oh look, I think we, we, we do and we don't. I think no one can tell a specific person exactly how long they are going to live and certainly this is not a website that can tell anyone exactly how long they will live for. But what this can do is it can give people information about how long similar people in a similar situation with a similar cancer, how long they have lived for. And so I guess that can give you a range. Um, and I think in our research, I guess that's what we found, that people would like to have information on scenarios. So not just one number, but what's the best case scenario? What's the worst case scenario? What are my chances of living one year, five years, 10 years? So sort of information like that can be quite helpful. And, and that's what your research informed in terms of the enhancement to the website and the app? Yes, yes. So I think we surveyed patients with cancer about what sort of information would they find helpful um, about their prognosis. And I think a lot of people find these conversations obviously very difficult and very distressing, but I think it is still helpful for people to have information um, on their likely survival time, what their best case scenario would be, what their worst case scenario would be, because it does help them sort of make plans for the future. Um, and I think just giving people one single number like your survival time is six months is very um, limiting and very hope destroying in a sense because no one really can say to that sort of accuracy that's how long someone will live for. So we found that people prefer to receive scenarios which gives them that range of times, which conveys a lot more hope. And so when you go in, you choose your cancer. So say it's colon cancer. You choose whether you're male or female, your age, the stage. Yeah. So the one thing you do need to know about your cancer is what stage it's at. And then it tells you really out of 100 people, you know, 93 will live for 10 years, um, et cetera, et cetera. So in other words, you, you get the sense of 100, out of 100 people where the majority lies, it's actually quite reassuring. I mean, some of the cancers, like esophageal cancer can be, pancreatic cancer can be pretty scary, but at least it tells you that not everybody is dead at five years, to be blunt. Yeah, I think that's the key to this. I think it's sort of <coughs> presenting the information in a way that's showing people that it probably is a lot longer than they're expecting. I think a lot of people hear that word cancer and think they're going to die tomorrow. And survival rates are actually often a lot better than what people are expecting. And when we have shown too, when we've given people information on survival, a lot of them say what we're telling them is better than they were expecting. Um, so I think this website will hopefully reassure some people. Um, but also, I guess, we're hoping that this website may also help start a conversation. So, like you said, the website does require people to put a bit of information in, um, and then they get that information about how similar people in the same situation have survived. What I'd be hoping is that people may then come back to their doctor and say, I found this information, how does this apply to me in my situation? Um, so then the doctors can potentially sort of um, adjust this and maybe for someone in the, you know, maybe the numbers would actually be better for somebody. And just, um, just finally, because we're running out of time, how relevant is it's US data and sometimes Australian research saying cancer treatment is better than American cancer treatment. How relevant is it for Australians? Yeah. 
I think the good thing about this website is it's based on population data. So it's from people across the United States from different states um, receiving treatment, not receiving treatment. So it's not, not just a selected population of well, you know, treated people. But I think that's why we want the doctors to then perhaps say in your situation, I think the other thing would be it's data because we're sort of giving people survival times one, two, five, ten years out. These people were diagnosed that long ago. So you might be saying, well, actually, if you're diagnosed today, we've actually got better treatments yeah. now. Your survival may be better than what this website's saying. So I think it's, it's re certainly relevant in that it's population-based, but does need to be adjusted to sort of adapt to current treatments. And the website is cancersurvivalrates.com. Belinda, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Norman. Dr Belinda Kiley is an academic medical oncologist based in Sydney. One of the most recognisable faces of the COVID pandemic has been America's top infectious diseases expert, Anthony Fauci. He's directed the US National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases for some 40 years and has advised seven presidents, but he became a household name in the past year with his steady science-based advice, often contradicting comments by the then President Donald Trump. Well, last week I spoke to Tony Fauci for an event honouring the late Australian AIDS researcher David Cooper of the UNSW Kirby Institute. And Australia often likes to compare itself to the US, but our experiences of the pandemic have been very different. Australia has a real quarantine biosecurity culture, and America is, of course, the land of the free and home of the brave. But Dr Fauci said there was something about this particular political moment that has made managing the pandemic in the US particularly hard. I'm a very loyal American, but I, I'm a realist too. And I see what is going on in our country. It is unfortunate that we are living in a time of profound divisiveness. I think anyone who pays any attention to what's going on in the United States sees that. Now, in some respects, that happens in different countries. But when it spills over in the middle of the worst, most historic pandemic of a respiratory disease that we've had in over a hundred years, if there's anything you want is you want people to be pulling together in uniform. It's sort of like being at a war. The common enemy is the virus and we should all be fighting the virus and not fighting with each other. So that has really been one of the real difficulties that we've had to face during this now 14 months and still counting with this epidemic. And that needs to be led from the top. And it's no secret that you and President Trump, there were difficulties in having a consistent, cohesive approach there. Has that shifted now that Biden's taken office? You know, it certainly has from the top. There's no doubt about it that President Biden wants science to rule. He said that behind the scenes to us on his medical team, and he has said it publicly, that we are going to be driven and ruled by science and facts. And when something goes wrong, we'll try and fix it, and we won't blame anyone. That has worked extremely well. However, we still have a degree of divisiveness in the country, and we still have situations where governors, because of their independence, are essentially defying some of the recommendations and the guidelines of public health, which is one of the reasons, together with the variants, why I believe, despite our great success with vaccines, we're, of course, we're sort of in a race between the potential for a real surging of cases and the fact that we're putting 
vaccines into people's arms extremely efficiently. The US struggled at the start of its vaccine rollout, uh, but has seemed to have picked up the slack. And Australia is also struggling with its vaccine rollout at the moment. What advice the US can give to Australia in this regard? To the extent that it's possible, what President Biden did is that he made it the very, very top priority. He put in a substantial amount of resources. He made equity a very important part of this. And what he's done, for example, is open up community vaccine centers, get vaccines to the pharmacies, develop mobile units to go out to get to people who are in poorly accessible areas and got vaccinators. He got as many of them out into the field as he possibly could. Those are retired physicians, military personnel, nurses, medical students, as many people as you possibly can to get out there and administer it. So it was really making it the highest priority to get vaccine into people's arms, and it works. We had 4.6 million vaccinations performed in a single day. That was a record that was really quite impressive. If we keep doing that over the next few months, I believe we will finally get the overwhelming majority of the people vaccinated in the next several months, which I hope will then turn things around and get that level of daily infections down to a manageable level. Early in your career was the AIDS epidemic. On that theme of really equity, global equity, your reflections on the role that stigma has played in both the AIDS epidemic and the COVID epidemic. Stigma has clearly played a almost an acute negative impact on HIV. The stigma associated with a disenfranchised group, namely gay men back then, who were not too long before 1981, finally were able to express their own sexual identity freedom with the famous Stonewall riot in the bar in Greenwich Village. But the stigma against gay men then, and against commercial sex workers, and against injection drug users, in a disease that was mysterious, was really, it's much more improved now, much better. But it was really a problem back then. Uh, and in some respects, still lingers. Less than stigma with regard to COVID-19 I have found that at least in my own country, it has shed a very bright light on the health disparities in my country. Because we know that African-Americans and Hispanics have a higher incidence of infection because of the nature of the jobs they have. They're essential workers in society more often than not. But also, importantly, due to the conditions that they have been under, the social determinants of health, they have a higher incidence and prevalence of the underlying medical comorbidities that when they are present, they give you a greater chance of getting a serious outcome with hospitalization and death. And in fact, that is the case in my country that if you look at the rate of hospitalization per 100,000 population of African-Americans, Hispanics versus whites, it is multifold greater among the minority populations. And if you look at deaths, it's one or two times greater among minority populations. 
Those health disparities are a reflection of things that have been inherent in our society for forever. And if there's one, I think, positive thing that comes out of this outbreak is the realization that we really need to do something about those health disparities. So I think it's a little different than stigma, but it goes beyond stigma. It goes to the structure in the country that has allowed that to happen. And what do you hope the general public takes away from it? It is an awareness that this can happen. And I think the resources that we as a global community needs to put into this, I mean, I don't think you could have any more cogent reason to do that than to just look at what we've been through as a global community over the last 14 or 15 months. So that was uh, Tony Fauci, who is the director of the U.S. National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Lots more to say there, and we're going to run more of that on the health report in weeks to come. That's right. If you can't possibly wait till then, you can check out the Kirby Institute's website where you can watch the full video of me chatting to Dr. Fauci. Or yes, you can just stay tuned to the Health Report feed. And now as our reward for our Health Report podcasters, as each week we will answer some of your questions. And what's the email again? With my dementia, I can't remember. <laughs> I won't ask you any dementia questions this week. It's no. healthreport at abc.net.au. And just quietly, this is my favourite part of the show. So if you're listening, you're our favourite too. Good. What's, what's going here? <laughs> Norman, let's start with this question from Ange. She's wanting to know more about the Beruli ulcer. It's been affecting more and more people around some suburbs of Melbourne and now more recently closer to the CBD. Anne just heard that it might be linked to possums and mosquitoes. Is that correct? And she wonders if possums could be vaccinated to stop them from spreading it. Yeah, well, actually in Victoria, it's called the Bairnsdale ulcer because it was first noticed down in the Latrobe Valley going towards Bairnsdale. And in fact, most Australian cases are in fact in the coastal Victoria. It's a mycobacterium, which is the same family as leprosy and tuberculosis. It causes a spot and then an ulcer, which can be very difficult to treat and using a combination of antibiotics and surgery. It's, it's very common in some low-income countries uh, where it is called Beruli ulcer rather than the Bairnsdale ulcer. And some people think that it might be spread by mosquitoes. Um, you can certainly find it in other animals. There probably is an animal vector here, but other people have thought, well, you can just get it by going through the bush and picking it up from uh, from the vegetation. So it, it's not entirely understood how you catch it, but it can be really quite debilitating and it needs to be got on top of and clearly has moved in from the country to the city. Yeah, tuberculosis and leprosy are both really hard to treat because they're such slow-growing bacteria. Is it the same with the Beruli slash Bairnsdale ulcer? Yes, that's that's absolutely right. And it becomes what's called indolent. Such a great word. <laughs> but the thing about indolent is that most antibiotics and treatments rely on fast-growing bacteria, which you can then attack and get into. Whereas when it's slow growing, you don't have a kind of metabolic weak spot to get into it. And uh, that's probably one of the reasons. They're just very difficult organisms to treat. Mm. Uh, a different, very different kind of question from Helen, who says, should massage oil, like sweet almond oil, that's applied to the skin and be absorbed and counted as calories? In other words, if Helen is being mindful of her energy intake, does oil on the skin count? You know, I've often wondered that. 
had a look for it and I don't think anybody actually really knows. It's certainly true that you absorb oil that you rub into the skin that will get into your bloodstream and if it's metabolizable, then it will be transferred to calories. But a lot of it will be trapped in the outer layers of the skin, which the blood doesn't get to. So how much actually gets into the body is probably quite limited. So that makes you feel better for your massage, I think. So I don't think um, there's a direct relationship between obesity and massage. Right. (laughs) Anne's asking about her elderly aunt has rheumatoid arthritis in her hip and she's in a lot of pain. And the specialist has mentioned something called platelet-enhanced plasma uh, that would be injected as an option. Have we looked at this before and what's the evidence say about this? Let's back up a little bit with um, things that you inject into the joints. So there are various things you can inject into joints when you've got osteoarthritis that can make you feel better. A lot of doctors now would not advise injecting steroids. There is a substance which is a bit like the filler you put on your lips, which you can put hyaluronic acid, which you can put into the, the, the joint, which helps to lubricate it and last maybe for about three months, but there's only limited value. There was a trend there for a while of uh, injecting stem cells into the joint and it got some improvement. But in fact, what they found was that when you did placebo trials or studies of the stem cells, it wasn't the stem cell, it was the fact that you were irritating the joint and causing a bit of bleeding that actually caused the pain relief. So stem cells did work, but it wasn't the stem cells, it was actually the injection which made people say, well, why don't we just inject blood products like platelets? So you take the blood and you spin it right down and you re-inject it back into the joint. And apparently it does work. It does relieve pain for a while. In osteoarthritis, I'm not aware that you would take the risk with rheumatoid arthritis or good studies have been done. But there is some evidence that it works in uh, osteoarthritis. You know, it's pretty major. And if you've got a joint, let's say that you've got a sore knee and you've got osteoarthritis of the knee and you want to try and delay a knee replacement, certainly what you don't want is an arthroscopy with a clearing out because that can speed your progress to needing a knee replacement. Something like this might help you delay it. If you, And I really do think that you need to talk to your rheumatologist about it if you've got rheumatoid because rheumatoid is an immune uh, response to the lining of the joint and you don't want to actually play with that too much. But in terms of delaying knee replacement, you know, strengthening your quadriceps, physiotherapy, hydrotherapy, those sorts of things, same sort of things as for your hips, for osteoarthritis of the hip, can delay it and in fact take some people off the waiting list altogether. So there are things that you can do that don't require an injection to the joint. But anecdotally, some people do get a benefit from platelet enhanced injections. And one last question from Richard, who's talking about a friend of his, a young woman who's recovering from anorexia and has some mental health issues, which is sort of beside the point. The question that Richard is asking is anti antipsychotic medications. Uh, he's noticed in a few friends of his who've had it, they've had big weight gain after being put on antipsychotics. And he's wondering why this could be. Yep. It's a major problem with uh, antipsychotic medications. And it's why some people with schizophrenia don't like taking them because they do put on weight and you can increase the risk of type 2 diabetes 
Um, so there are major side effects and there hasn't been enough research yet into antipsychotics which don't do this. Some of them have a lower risk of that than others. And if you want to minimise the chance of weight gain, you need to talk to your psychiatrist about which one might be best for you. Also, if you do exercise and there are some other drugs that you can take with them like metformin, which can mitigate the weight gain. The reason for the weight gain is not entirely clear, but it's from animal research that suggests that the antipsychotics do affect our receptor in the brain, which increases appetite, at least in animal models, and decreases activity. So it's these antipsychotics work by influencing neural receptors in the brain, chemical messengers. They're not that targeted. And one of the side effects is that it's obviously affecting the appetite center and perhaps even the desire to take exercise. Right. So interesting. Well, that's all we've got for you in our mailbag tonight. But as we said before, healthreport at abc.net.au is the email address to send your questions and comments to. We encourage you to do so. And we'll see you next time. See you then.